Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Sheila Prebright taped live at the Georgia Museum of Art at the University of Georgia. Bright is included in Reckonings and Reconstructions, Southern Photography from the Do Good Fund, which is at GMOA through January 8, 2023, before embarking on a national tour. The Do Good Fund is a Columbus, Georgia-based charity that collects and makes available to museums photography of the American South made from the 1950s to the present. The exhibition includes artists such as Jill Frank, Baldwin Lee, Deborah Luster, Gordon Parks, and Ramel Ross. Bright's work builds narratives about social, political, and historical events through series of pictures of landscape, social justice movements, suburbia, and more. Solo exhibitions of Bright's work have been held at the Clark Atlanta University Art Museum, the High Museum of Art in Atlanta, the Wadsworth Athenaeum in Hartford, and more. Her book, Hashtag 1960Now, Photographs of Civil Rights Activists and Black Lives Matter Protests, was published by Chronicle Books in 2018. Amazon and IndieBound offer it for about $18 to $30, a total steal. We'll have a link at manpodcast.com. Sheila Prebright taped live at the Georgia Museum of Art after the break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Gordon Parks, Stokely Carmichael, and Black Power, showcasing the renowned photographer's never-before-seen photographs and footage of Black Power leader Stokely Carmichael for Life magazine. Parks had a prolific career as the first Black staff member at Life, and his artistry extended to writing, film, and music. Parks captures the true essence of the African-American experience and the civil rights movement. El Italia calls this presentation, quote, one of the 10 exhibitions not to be missed this fall around the world. On view through January 16th at the MFAH. Learn more at mfah.org slash Gordon Parks. On view through February 19th, 2023 at the Getty Center in Los Angeles, the captivating new photography exhibition Udabarth Peripheral Vision investigates the act of looking. In her multi-part works, Barth explores the impermanent qualities of light, as well as its ability to affect optical perception using techniques like intentionally blurring images and capturing the way light travels across a room throughout the day. The exhibition traces Barth's 40-year career, from her early experimentations as a student to later studies of the eye's capabilities and the camera's role in helping an artist translate visual information into a photograph. Her most recent work is displayed here for the first time, a project commissioned in celebration of the Getty Center's 20th anniversary. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. Support for the Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, an art museum in St. Louis where ideas are freely explored, new art is exhibited, and historic work reimagined. This fall, the Pulitzer presents Barbara Chase Ribu, Monumentale, The Bronzes, a major monographic presentation examining the artistic vision of the Paris-based artist, novelist, and poet, Barbara Chase Rebu. On view from September 16th to February 5th, 2023, Monumentale brings together some 40 major sculptures from the 1950s to the present day, accompanied by 20 drawings. The exhibition illustrates the artist's highly original visual language that is fundamentally global and transhistorical, with influences ranging from Italian Baroque architecture to West African bronze making. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. California artist Alexis Smith is widely known for working in collage, layering quotes from film and literature with movie posters, album covers, 
advertisements, and newspapers. She highlights the narratives embedded in our culture, asking us to think critically about how they inform our sense of self and our society. Now, through February 2022, immerse yourself in Smith's collection of images and objects, the recently expanded Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego La Jolla campus. From intimate artists' books to room-sized installations, visitors will witness film, literature, pop culture, and Hollywood reinvented. Plan your visit to the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego by going to mcasd.org. Organized by and on view at the Georgia Museum of Art at the University of Georgia through January 8th, Reckonings and Reconstructions, Southern Photography from the Do Good Fund, is the first large-scale survey of the Columbus, Georgia-based collection. Highlighting a wide-ranging group of photographers diverse in gender, race, ethnicity, and region, it features 125 photographs by 73 artists, including Gordon Parks, Sheila Pre-Bright, Mark Steinmetz, Michael Stipe, and William Christenberry, and asks questions that identify and complicate conventional ideas of an American South and Southern photography. Visit georgiamuseum.org for more information about reckonings and reconstructions, or visit athensga.com to plan a trip. And we're back. Sheila Prebright, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Well, thank you. You were born in the South, in Norcross, Georgia. No, it's Waycross. Oh, is it? Yeah, Waycross. Oh, Waycross, Georgia. Yeah. And raised in a military family, which meant New York and Colorado and Missouri and Germany. And eventually you came back here to the South to, to live in Atlanta. In a Q&A you did with, with Nama Keith on the occasion of Aperture's vision and justice issue a couple of years ago, you said that returning to the, quote, returning to the South as an adult has piqued my curiosity about how current and past histories intersect. And the work is rich with that. What about how current and past intersects most interests you? Like you were saying, I was born in the South, but I wasn't raised in the South. And my upbringing was, formative years was when I was young in Germany. And for me to do all of this traveling, and as an adult coming back to the South, it was very strange to me. When I came to Atlanta in 1999, I believe, I called my mother and I said, what is going on here in the South? And she laughed at me and she says, child, you're in the South. (laughs) So this is like a coming home for me. And it's for me learning of me and my culture and my history and my family. I didn't realize that at the time when I first came, when I started doing a lot of the work, because my father, I've always had a camera with me, and my father was very instrumental. He retired and moved back to the little town called Waycross, Georgia. My mother did not want to go back, but they went back. And so three of the girls came to Atlanta And for me, it was my camera trying to find my roots of what's going on. Because I grew up in a very diverse atmosphere and environment. So when I first came to Atlanta, I was really fascinated about the culture, African-American culture. And we lived downtown. I was then with my boyfriend, but my husband now. And I would just hang out. 
And I started photographing, you don't have those images up there, of young men with gold teeth. And I really didn't understand that. And I would just hang out and ask them why, you know. So I think from there, shooting there and shooting a lot of the work that you see now is like memory and searching. And a lot of my elders are gone now. My mother and father is gone. So there's things that I cannot even ask them that I should have asked when they were living, but we don't think about that sometimes. There's so much of the past in your work. Either you're updating the past by showing how pasts are playing out in the present, and a lot of the landscape work we'll talk about a little later on is full of references, including pictorial references to the past. How do you get from being interested in men with gold teeth in Atlanta to having such an interest in the past in the work? Is there a relation between those? It happened in 2013 when Trayvon Martin was murdered. And I started thinking about the young people of the civil rights movement because I felt that it's going to take a young person in order to bring about change. And so I started wanting to know who they were, the ones that were unknown. And I found Mr. Lonnie King, who started the Atlanta Student Movement. And I started taking imagery of the freedom fighters, foot soldiers, the children crusades. And from then on, I felt that as an artist, instead of being in the studio, that I needed to get out on the ground to find out what was going on. And it was me as a woman and as a black person to go into these neighborhoods to find out what these narratives are. And so I did that for seven years. I didn't realize at the time I kept, it was like I was on the plane, off the plane. I was in shows, I was in talks. And it wasn't until 2017, because my husband was saying, you got to slow down. But I didn't want to slow down, because I felt that I had to tell these stories. But at the end of 2017, it was around in December. I didn't really realize how I needed self-care and how I was traumatized. I felt, as an artist, why am I doing this? Because I didn't feel that people really cared at all about this imagery that we're showing and it's like it's like a perpetual revolution is constantly going and it's like can these narratives really make a change i mean we're taking like baby steps but can it really change so at that time i was questioning myself about what am i doing and i got a call from the photo editor from the new york times and didn't know him, and he said, I love your work, and I want to commission about six or seven um, photographers to do an essay. I said, what is the essay going to be about? He said, racism. I was like, oh, gosh, I'm tired. And so I told him that I didn't want to photograph people anymore, that I was going to go to the land, because it was all about the land. And for me, the land is a very challenging thing to photograph. Landscapes are very challenging to photograph. And so he told me, he said, Sheila, you need to photograph people. And I'm like, no, I don't. And so, 
So I actually started, I live right, literally like five minutes away from the, um, Stone Mountain. Never been, up, been there. I graduated in, I believe, 2003 at Georgia State. And my husband and I, we moved to Stone Mountain. We didn't think we would ever go to Stone Mountain, but we did. <laughs> and so I started going up to the mountain, visiting the mountain. And I wanted to know more about the mountain. And specifically, I wanted to talk about the issues that our societies are dealing with is through the land. And that's how I started with the landscape. While we're in landscapes, let's talk about the landscapes a bit. And, and we'll just kind of dance around chronologically because why not, right? You've made two landscape series, one called Invisible Empire and one called Behold the Land. First, why two distinct series? Well, Invisible Empire, like I said, started with the New York Times. And then what happened was pandemic in 20. And the High Museum came to me and asked me to do a body of work surrounding that. They were hoping that I would continue that work. And I received a commission picturing the South at the High Museum. So for a whole year, I spent a lot of time on that mountain a lot of time on that mountain. And then it was... That, that mountain being Stone Mountain? Stone Mountain, yes, yeah, Stone Mountain. Yes, yeah, Stone Mountain. And what happened then, Behold the Land came out of another commission. I mean, people are just pulling me from one area to another. <laughs> they love my landscapes because everybody's always saw my people images, portrait images. And for you to cross over, I was told as an artist into that, that's really a hard thing to do. But they said, I nailed it. Let me just interrupt real quick with a quick story. Ansel Adams said that the Appalachian Mountains and the landscape down here was the hardest thing to photograph in America. So, yeah. Yeah, because with Stone Mountain, I wanted people to feel those images. I want people to hear those images. And how I shot the images was black and white, very moody, very dark, but very beautiful because I want to draw you in. I, I had a question about actually how dark they are. So did you shoot them dark? Did you print them dark? Like where in your process of, you shot them dark? What happened to me was is very experimental mode. I took Polaroids. And I started photographing Polaroids because I wanted the Polaroids to inform me how to shoot this, okay? And so that was like my process when I was up in the mountain shooting the Polaroids. And I, I just didn't want a regular landscape where people's like, oh, that kind of way. I wanted people to feel. And one thing about these landscapes with Invisible Empire, it came out of a lot of reading that I have been doing of W.E.D. Du Bois. And he talked about how beautiful Georgia is, but so disturbing. I don't know the exact quote on that. And he named that essay Invisible Empire. So I delved into about the KKK and white supremacy, because a lot of times, and I'll speak for myself, we, we watch the news, we hear little things about different cultures from different people, but do we really dive in and do any more research? So I started doing the research, and I learned so much. And with these landscapes, I decided to 
title each one of them because I wanted to tell a narrative through the titles with these landscapes. If you go to like a Google Images search and search on Stone Mountain, all of the pictures are over bright and over light because they're people who are trying to capture the freeze. You know, had you noticed that? Were you mindful of, by making my images here darker and more, I don't know, in, in, in works from Invisible Empire, the thing I had in my notes over and over again was the contest is still on. So when people take a triumphalist picture of Stone Mountain, highly lit, to show the freeze, that is a celebration of perceived victory. And I think in your pictures, the feeling is the thing is still on very much. So were you mindful of how going darker with your pictures would, would answer and contest those triumphalist pictures that... I didn't think about that at all. I just thought about the research that I was doing and what I wanted to show and what I want people to feel and hear from these images. So that's when you asked me about Behold the Land. So I received a commission with Emergency Magazine and they wanted me to photograph landscapes in black and whites. And the whole concept was coming out of the pandemic is like living in the unknown. Where does the future hold for all of us? And so I started reading W. E. Du Bois again and he'd written an essay on Behold the Land. And I wanted to, coming from Invisible Empire and what, to me, that was an awakening for me as a black person about the reality, about the land, but looking into the future. That's why I call this Behold the Land. And that's why these images are back to back, Behold the Land. So that phrase, Behold the Land, it's comes from a 1946 Du Bois speech, and it's a speech Du Bois gives to the Southern Negro Youth Congress, which existed for eight years, and was, I think in today's vernacular, we call it a leadership training program for young people. And the idea of, of the Congress was that the greatest threat to the United States wasn't communism, it wasn't you know, anti-capitalism, it was fascism and how fascism was administered and carried forth by white supremacists. And so Du Bois gives this speech to young people. I don't know if I want to say children, but young people. They were young people, and it was a very diverse group. Yes, it was not all white or all black. It was an integrated group. And in fact, it was one of the first groups that, for example, in Alabama, that Bull Connor targeted in, in an effort to keep them, keep white people and black people from meeting together. Some of his earliest attempts to, to enforce segregation. And so the children part in that is important, and we'll come back to it later. But in, in these pictures, you know, beauty is a really key strategy. And I think you wrote something that kind of gets at that a bit. Yes, because with the magazine, this is the magazine, Emergence magazine, and it came out this year, they wanted me to write an essay, and I wasn't feeling an essay. And I'm not a poet or do poetry, but I end up writing something like poetry, and I'm going to read it to everyone. It's, Behold the land. I feel the ancestors calling as I journey into the land, dirt and blood. Broken families of generational trauma, babies, children, husbands, wives, black bodies. Behold the land. 
Where is the love, the beauty, the justice, filling the spirits, releasing us, black joy? Behold the land. Going to reset the clock in the southern sun, I feel it in the air, a new start, a new foundation, the beauty of Mother Earth. So with this work is I'm looking into the future. And what does our future look like? And I'm doing this through the land because with Behold the Land, I'm coming up with another body of work of my own, not commissions, through, collectively through Invisible Empire and Behold the Land. And I'm working on the coastal cities in Georgia. In Behold the Land, there are a number of pictures that are built from and with blurs. What about blurs was interesting to you? I felt by blurring some of the, the images, it's like we're living in a world right now where we're really living in the unknown, and it's kind of like a blur. So I'm dealing with, with reality and non-reality to a certain extent because when I get onto a lot of these social media platforms and we see all this performance there, what is reality? What is real? And so with the landscape, I'm playing with the notion of the future. We're getting ready to go into AI, where you probably won't even need a photographer, a camera, because I started this yesterday. All I did was type words, and there's an image. So I'm really thinking about the future and how we're going to exist. And I feel that the land is very, very important because it's all about the land. It's all about the land. I've been doing another side project on farming and photographing that too. Because it seems like from a spiritual sense that we need to connect with the land. And I'm really enjoying myself with these landscapes now. It's giving me a sense of peace. And it's given me a sense of spirituality, you know, what, what is that? That's interesting to me, because when I think of artists, like maybe the, the artist most famous for using blurs ideologically, if you will, is, is say, Gerhard Richter. And his blur, he, he uses blurring to address the past, and particularly the horrors of Germany's past. And so to hear you're, in, you're using blurs and looking in the other direction is really interesting. I mean, that's like a really different point of view. Yeah, that's fun. So we were talking about Du Bois and the 46 Southern Youth Negro Congress. I don't know. I think I, I, have, I think I have it in here. Organizations should have three word names. Um, <laughs> but anyway, the point, the point I was getting to is that that's a project that Du Bois, a speech Du Bois gave to children. And while you are definitely not a photographer of children, the experiences of children and the impacts of children run through a whole lot of your work. There are lots of children in the Ferguson pictures, for example, the 1960, hashtag 1960 now pictures. There are two girls and a younger boy carrying signs in a march. There's your entire Plastic Bodies series, which is about children's engagement with objects that suggest to them who they, they might be. Was there a point at which you built an understanding, personal or theory-driven or history-based or whatever, 
an understanding of why children needed to be in or addressed in your work? Children are the future. And I didn't realize that's what I was doing. But I, I think it all comes back to how I was raised. Because as a child, four or three or six years old living in Germany, and how as a black person, didn't really think about me being black back then, how we were looked upon. And so I think that's really forming the reason why I photograph. I, I'm learning that right now of why I'm photographing the things or even the young people because I was a young person, you know, young person, and people looked upon me as not too smart. I was very quiet. I was a bookworm, and I'm a lover of books, and people used to chastise me a lot. And I think I'm always looking at young people, whether it's through the imagery of, of, think about these protests and how these young people, one of the images, you see these three girls that was taken in Ferguson, how they're being at an early age being pushed out, okay, to deal with this, the protests, okay? Do you understand the kind of trauma that they're having? And then when you become a grown person, and I think about, because it was one young black boy, but it was two young, two girls, two young black girls, and I think about black women, and how do you protect black women, and what they have to constantly endure in society. And it's like I have this image of the mothers I was asked another commission. <laughs> this was in 2018, and at the time I was doing a lot of traveling, and this is in Atlanta, and an art organization wanted me to do a, a mural. And I was busy, and I'm like, yeah, I'll do the mural, and I didn't realize what it really entailed. It was part of the NFL. They wanted to talk about the legacy of the past and the present. And that was the time when Take a Knee, what's his name, Colin Kaepernick, was doing Take the Knee, and I think the NFL wanted to do something as far as PR and public relations with that. And I didn't know that, so I went, they asked me to come to a press release, and when I found out about it, I was like, oh my God, I'm not gonna do this. <laughs> and so the reporters came to me, and I'm backing off. They said, why are you backing off? I said, because I don't like y'all. <laughs> <laughs> and when I got home, I had so many people that saw me and said, Sheila, you got to go through this because we know what you're going to do. <laughs> you're going to take a stance. And I thought about it. And I was, when I was in school, my father was the one that was responsible to tell me to go to school for photography because he said I liked it. So he put me through to get my MFA at Georgia State. So I studied Richard Avedon a lot. And it was because I love the way that he photographed portraiture and people and how he pulled them out of their environment and that you can just really look at them to, I don't, I don't wanna say study them, but really feel something from all of that. And so I saw a Richard Avedon photograph that he took in Atlanta in the 1960s of 
I was going to say James Bond, but his name is not James Bond. Julian Bond. I used to work with Julian Bond a bit, and he would not have minded. I know. <laughs> Julian Bond. And he was holding his six-month-old daughter, Phyllis, with the SNCC students behind him. That image really blew me away, and I said, I have to recreate that with the mothers. Think about... The mothers being... The mothers of whose children have been murdered by police brutality. There's lack of better words. And I said, I need to reproduce that image because we don't look at mothers. You know, everybody has a mother. Take the blackness off of it. A mother is one that births all of us into the world, okay? And these women, these women were especially looked upon very negative of not taking care of their children. They might be on drugs. You know, all of the negative stereotypes when it comes to the black women and when their children are, you know, are been murdered, you know, because they're trying to find that negative thing with their children. So I wanted to celebrate these mothers. So I decided... I call, because everybody know me on the ground. I start calling people. I said, I want to photograph the mothers. And I met two women from Atlanta. And they knew Eric Garner's mother. I can't think of his name. Eric Garner's mother is the one where he, the term came out, I can't breathe. And you had Tamir Rice's mother. And I can't think of the other mother's name right now, but her child was killed at the Oakland Station, and they did a movie about it, Fruitville, Fruitville. Well, anyway, I flew those, I flew those mothers in town. And what was most important, I'm not going to say it wasn't the photograph, but it was we all came together. We cried. I learned about these mothers, these mothers, some of the mothers are ashamed of coming out, wanted to talk about their children because of how society depict them. You have mothers who had trauma within trauma with them based on what makes your child more important than my child. So I felt that it was very important to really talk about mothers and how these mothers have fallen into a place where they have become activists, not of their choice at all. And they have constantly, think about when George Floyd happened. These mothers call me. That's that trauma. They have to re relive that trauma. So I wanted to play homage to the mothers, but in a joyful way, a black joy. So I have a couple questions about Mothers March On. We were talking about children a moment ago, and Julian Bond, as you noted, is holding his daughter Phyllis who may or may not be thrilled about being held at that moment. <laughs> so when you saw that Avedon and became interested in that Avedon, it was for the child, not for Julian? I think what it, the symbolicness of what it represented, it was the child. And then it was, these were young people. They were 18, 19, 20 year, years old. They were activists. It was all a combination of all of that. And to see that image just a pose of Richard Avedon and the mothers, and you see Miss Carr, she, Gwen Carr, hold her. That was one of the, probably one of the last images, and she just opened her hand up, and she's childless, and Julian Bond has child. There is one person in your picture who is not a mother of a young person who was killed by police, and that person is Dr. Rosalind Pope 
who in 1960, when she was a young person, you know, not a child, but... Uh, she a, was 19 years old when she yeah, um, authored the Appeal of... What's it? Appeal of Human Rights. Appeal for Human Rights, 1960, which, was, which ran in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution as an advertisement. And I would love to know, as an old journalism person, why the paper didn't run it as an op-ed, but we'll leave that alone for now. And so you included Dr. Rosalind Pope in your image. So it's certainly a callback to, you know, the Appeal for Human Rights and, and that era and a human link between the two pictures. But were you interested in that she had done something so important, pivotal, and, and really capital M movement defining as a young person? I was looking at generational because my book, 1960 Now, I have the young and the elders in the book because I don't think that we're very well connected. And when we're young, we don't listen a lot of times. And I felt that it was very important generational so to connect what's going on because we don't know at all. So it was more generational and those women cried. I mean, you would have experienced this. It was, it was a beautiful experience that I will never forget. That was the most important thing, not the photograph. It was the experience with the mother and Dr. Rosalind Pope. And we learn of each other because we don't talk to each other, okay? It's just maybe women things. You installed Mother's March On with the Avedon on the sides of one building or two, I'm not really sure. It was on one building. It was a single building with a gap between, like a recessed gap between. So the two pictures are huge, but they're about 15 feet apart. There'll be an, an image of both Sheila's picture and the installation on manpodcast.com. So one of the things that's striking about that installation is that within two pictures is, is really several centuries of American history of success and hope and resilience, and of course also our national failure. Did you always know that you were going to put those two pictures together in the installation, or did that come about as a possibility as the process of making the work and showing it came about? Well, when I saw the Richard Don image and the image that I photographed, I knew that it had to be together. I went to, I called the Richard Avedon Foundation. I said, I'm going to be in New York. And I want to use Richard Avedon Foundation. You know that's hard, right? The director says, okay. <laughs> we met. And I, I was overwhelmed with him. And he was overwhelmed with me. He says, whatever you want to do, I'll let you do it. Good Lord. That's, that's not the easiest thing in the world. No, it's not. With any photographer's work. Right. And for, for, for that foundation and to use that image on the wall, oh, yes, that was... <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yes. So I'm guessing you mocked it up and, and had a sense of what it was going to be like. But when it got installed, was the communication between the two works what you had imagined it would be? Yes. And everybody loved it. I mean, it was hell getting it up. I'm not going to get into it. <laughs> but when it got up, I cried. You don't understand as an artist it looks like, okay, we're doing this work and we're putting it up and we have these exhibits. You don't understand the struggle. I guess maybe because maybe the type of work that I do, the struggle that you go through and it's like there's something that drives within me and I don't know, I think I get this from my father, is that it's going to get done. 
And when it got done, because I didn't think it was going to get done, I cried. It was amazing, yeah. So it's, all of this is not about me. It's really about the collective of African-American culture. We're not just monolithic, one thing. I'm trying to talk about the culture from gold teeth to plastic bodies to, you haven't seen the farming yet, but it's a collective of all of us and what we represent besides what we see in the media about us. That's a good pivot to the 1960 Now pictures, which are about collective action. And kind of before we ease into those, or maybe to ease into those, and, and not just because we share a university in common, I want to ask you about an experience you had at the University of Missouri, which at the time, when, when each of us was there, different times, had a famous and much admired journalism program. And you took, uh, you weren't a J student, but you took a class in photojournalism when you were there? My last year in college, I did. Because I, I was the, like I said before, I was very shy. And I don't know what made me take that class. I can't even remember why, but I think it was like an elective or something. And I took that. And that's when I said I could speak through the camera. That's what really opened me up. So what about that class taught you that, that having a camera could work that way? And then as, as a I don't know, what was your major? Something else. Textile. So then how did, how did, what about that class made that open up for you? It allowed me to understand how to tell stories of people, okay? Because I follow, I, what I, I follow around an educator, a teacher, and I started photographing that. And that's how I really got into photography, is, is through that. So my last year in college, at the time, my brother, well, he's still there. He was in Houston, Texas. That's where I went to. I went to Houston, Texas and had one camera, one lens. And I was very a very curious person because think about it. I lived on the base. You can do nothing wrong. I was around diversity. And I wanted to know about hip-hop culture. So I would hang, go hang out in the urban communities and start photographing these rappers, didn't know them at all. And I started photographing gangster rap. I was around the drugs, the guns and everything, really naive. When I think about it, very, very naive, and God was really with me. I mean, I was over at the houses where when I first, one guy said, I need you to come over and photograph our, you know, they have labels and they're artists. And when I went over there, it was all these young men there. And I'm like, what are y'all doing in the house? <laughs> you know, why are y'all here? They had guns and everything. And I asked them where they really, and they looked at me and said, you're like a white girl in a black body. <laughs> and so they actually kind of looked over me because of the, the being so naive. But one thing about it, too, I didn't have any fear. And I felt that they sensed that. And it was always there for me. I mean, I, I just think about it now. I could have been in jail because, you know, like you're hanging around, you know, stuff. And it, it was real interesting. I have to really look back on my life, you know, with that. But that work of photographing hip hop culture in these young black males made me understand what you were talking about, the protest images. It prepared me for the protest images. And the reason why I say that is because 
I was around the culture in, in these urban neighborhoods, around the gun culture. I saw a lot. I was at concerts. I was the girl in Houston, Texas. Everybody would call if you wanted a photograph. It was me. So it prepared you for the, those pictures and making those pictures prepared you for the protests because you learned how to be invisible behind a camera, get people comfortable with you being there with a camera. What was the... I'll give you an example. When I went to, when I was in Baltimore, I was in Baltimore for another commission, but it wasn't, didn't have anything to do with protest. I was there when Freddie Gray had passed that Sunday in the hospital. And that Monday, the young people went to, started protesting. Don't know anybody in the community. I went into the community. <laughs> And I got out and I was so amazed. I don't know why I was so amazed. There was a police station right there and it was taped off with all the cops, some, some of them young babies themselves. You could feel that energy there. I gets out of the car um, and then you had the people over here, the cops over there. And I'm looking at the landscape of these buildings and like, oh my God. I felt like we were in another country, not America. And there was a group of people just looking at me, and they looked at me, and I forgot, I forgot what I said to them. They said, we don't want you here. We don't want you Which here. they? Which they? The, the people in the community. They don't, we don't want you here. We don't want white people here. We don't want the media here. Because the only time that you come into our communities is when you want to talk about something negative. When we sweeping up the, cleaning up our community, you don't want to hear about that. So get the F out. So I said, you don't know me. I'm from Atlanta, the home of the civil rights movement, but I'm here to tell our story. And they looked me up and down, these were guys. And they said, okay. And what I, with that experience, I didn't have any fear with that. That same thing that I was dealing with when I was shooting hip hop, you know, it was a little bit different because I, I really didn't know them at the time, but I got to know them. It was that, it was no fear. You can't, when you go into these communities, you can't have any fear because the media put all this negative stuff out about these communities. I saw a lot of, Fear. I saw a lot of hurt and a lot of don't know what to do. The elders are not teaching us anything. And then the elders is, is, is against the young people because they don't think that they're doing it right. I saw a lot. So I feel that the hip hop and me being in those communities was, is, it was the voice. It came, I feel that they came out of the Black Power Movement, and it was the voice of the CNN back then because they were talking about what was going on in those, same thing that's going on now in those communities then. So that's what I mean by all of that prepared me for being on the ground and not having that fear. You know, when I went to Ferguson, oh, my God, you just can feel that energy. Oh, you can just feel that energy. And you can't trust anybody. Can't trust anybody on the ground. How did you learn how to photograph a protest or a march? You don't learn, you just do. 
So do you, by doing, develop techniques for how to move around people, how to move around a moving body of people, how to insert yourself in a way where you get, you know, the shot? Did you develop strategies? Have you developed strategies? You know, it's like, at the time, I don't think that I was developing strategies, but I'm very observant. I would, a lot of times, I would walk with the people, get in, in the crowd with the people and photograph and move around and do it that way. I think it's just, you do it and you learn from it, you know? And you have digital now where you could photograph with your camera low and you don't have to put your camera up to your face. I was photographing, a lot of people don't believe this, but the images that are in the museum right now was shot with a micro four thirds lens and it had a flip, you know, a little flip, and I would hold it down like this. And I've always shot, a lot of the imagery, when you see those images, is shot with a 90 millimeter lens, which is a portrait lens. And except for when I was doing George Floyd, no, that was portrait too. I shot a lot with a 90 millimeter. You very seldom see a lot of wide angle shots of my work. You notice that? Because I want you to feel intimate with these images. I want you to hear these images. You can read all the words on all the signs. So we talked about your interest in the Avedon, the 63 Avedon a moment ago. There is a remarkable history of movement, civil rights movement and, and gay and lesbian rights movement photography. Ernest Withers, Danny Lyon, Herbert Randall, Diana Davies, Manetta Sleet. Was there a point before you started shooting protest images or during the, you know, in the middle of making that body of work where you looked at that work from the 60s and found anything in it? I didn't have time. I was, I was, I was wondering about <laughs> I that, was too. I was on the plane, off the plane. I was, there was in the show. Because happening oh, all the time for no, a couple of years. Oh, no, it was all the time. I was doing a lot of lectures. I haven't had time, time at all. I was just out there doing the work. The 1960 Now stuff, did you shoot all of it in black and white? So why black and white? Because it's, it's what has changed. I felt that shooting in black and white it's like, what has, what has changed? And I told myself that the only way that I was shooting color is when it changes, when it comes to the protest images. One of the actions, one of the things that recurs in a lot of the 1960 Now pictures is the gesture of black men and women, and I guess children too, for that matter, putting their arms up, up in the air for obvious reasons. It's a pose, yes, but it's you know, an act of resistance and also the, the, the protesters' way of assigning responsibility for killing and murder at the hands of police. It is also, it must be said, pictorially striking. It is, it is a, uh, within the composition of a picture, it works, and every time, right, which I'm sure you noticed at some point. So how did you come to realize that that pose had to be in so much of the work? It was always there. Just because it was there in the... It was always there. And if I think about it, when you talk about it, I think it's about revolutionary black joy. All ages, too, in the pictures. I, I, I always say this. When a black body is born, is born into a movement, whether they're conscious of it or not. So, so in the work is the idea of reclaiming that pose as a joyful pose. 
a, a reorienting of how we might consider it? Well, it's trauma. It can be black joy. How do we move forward? It's about liberation. It's about moving forward. But how do, I mean, we talk about this a lot, but how do we go about looking into that future and moving into the future? I remember when I was, when I was reading through the book thinking, and I'm not an historian of 1960s photography, but I remember thinking that there is no one pose or one bodily position that is dominant in 60s civil rights photography. But I think this, in this most recent movement, that's there a lot. It's, you're right, it's, it's there a lot. And a lot of that too, what was going on was the LGBTQ community was really the force behind Black Lives Matter. A lot of people don't really know that, but it really was, yes. In both the 1960 Now pictures and in other pictures you've made, there are a lot of American flags. There are, sometimes they're in posed pictures, studio pictures, and sometimes they're in the 1960 Now pictures where like there might be a little American flag on the mask someone is wearing, because of course COVID era. There might be an American flag, like in one of the pictures here in the exhibition, somebody's wearing a... Distressed. The flag is turned upside down. Yes. Well, that picture too, which is like my favorite picture in the whole series. Yes. But somebody's wearing like a t-shirt and it says U.S. Olympic team on it. We'll come to that picture in a moment. With the black With the fist. We'll come back to that picture in a moment. But anyway, so I'm guessing you notice flags. And why? I didn't see that on there when I was photographing. You don't understand. When you're down on the ground, there's a lot, lot going on. And what strikes my eye is that it's, I, I just capture it. It's just, I capture that. Now, the flag with the, the one that you like, it's in the show, right? No, it's not in the show. I think it's not. Yeah, it's not in the show. It's, it's, it's distressed. It's, it's a woman yeah, holding marching, the flag. carrying a flag on a short flagpole and the flag is upside down. Yeah, it's upside down, and that, that's the distress. So I, when you're photographing, well, when I'm photographing the protest, it, it's very emotional thing because I was in the crowd with them with that, and I saw that, and that's when I took that. I was walking with them, you know? And I try to look, you see this image right here? I want to show images that you don't see in the media. They're always showing a black male on top of a car doing something, whatever. I wanted you to feel and hear this young black male this right here. This young man crying. From yeah, and that's what you're talking about. I didn't even notice that Olympic, Olympic on him. I noticed the fist in the cell phone, the technology. And think about it with this movement of, of today, things can hit globally in a, in a minute. You know, it's just like with George Floyd, you know. So I thought that was very, and this is the flag right here in distress. That was in Ferguson. It, it's, that's really interesting because there are flags in a whole lot of your pictures. So there is a picture, the one where the man wearing the U.S. Olympic team flag logo on his back, on, on, on the back of his shirt, and he has his fist up in the air. And I know that in the moment, you're there in the moment. But when it comes time to pick the pictures for a series, pick the pictures for a book, pick what you're going to print, just thinking about that U.S. Olympic team logo and the black man with his fist in the air, do you think about 1960 and the Mexico City Olympics? I think about contemporary times because of the cell phone. 
That's what I was thinking about. <laughs> but no, that, that's a good point, though, that you were saying about the fist and, and the Olympics. Yeah, it's a, a, both a metaphor for both of them. Switching to a, another body of work, your Suburbia series, which you made in the mid, I never know how to say this, it's not the mid-2000s, because that would sound like 2050, right? But the, but, but the mid-aughts. It's a group of pictures of the homes of black people who live in suburbia. And there is a really striking picture in that series of a bookcase. It's a very muscularly composed picture, which I nerd out on. <laughs> but it presents the bookcase less as a functional bookcase, less as a bookcase that someone is using every day, than as a, a declaration of a certain bourgeois sophistication. And so I guess first, I wonder what attracted you to the bookcase. All of the books. And coming into a, a black home, you don't see that a lot. And so this body work came about because in the media at the time, you were constantly seeing images of urban America. And I wanted to show a difference, a different point, a different point, because at that time in the contemporary art world, the hot thing was suburbia. But I didn't see images of African Americans. And, you know, Atlanta is a large community of African-Americans that live in suburbia. And that was really a hard body of work to do because you have to gain people's trust. And for African-Americans, we never know what people are going to do on the negative side of it, you know. I mean, that's how African-Americans are always thinking. So I was able to talk to a few individuals to go into their homes. I purposely didn't want to show the people in the house, and if you did, you would see a woman, I don't know if that image is up there, laying in the bed, and she's reading Newsweek, and it has technology on it. Those are the images that struck my attention more versus because of the negative stereotypes that are being placed upon the culture. Because when I, I that's how I actually became national was with that body of work. And I had to go to New Center. It was called Santa Fe Prize, but now they changed their name to Center. And even though I won that work, I had to show the work to publishers, curators, consultants, gallery owners, and they didn't understand the work. They said that I didn't have enough signifiers in the work to show that these were black homes. And I made a joke. You want to see collard green fried chicken and watermelon? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that was the whole point of that work, is to show a different side of the culture, you know, with that work. And I feel that this is the most important work that I felt that I have ever done. You know, throughout the streams of all of my work, you will see the imagery looks different, but collectively there is a common thread a narrative with all of this body of work. Were you interested in the specific books in that bookcase? Because they're pretty interesting. Yes, I was. The way that they had it set up. Let me quickly describe how they have it set up, because some people are listening and not having seen the picture yet. Some of the books are set up so that the cover of the book is facing the room, and others of the books are installed so that the spine is facing the room. So they have, they have spotlit certain books by how they, sorry. Right. And one of the books is 
Some about blackness is gone. I can't think of the name of the Deborah Dickerson's The End of Blackness. The End of Blackness. That really piqued my curiosity. And I purchased that book. <laughs> yes. Controversial book then and now. Mm-hmm. So some of the other books in the bookcase are Lenny Riefenstahl's People of Cow, which is a fantastically problematic book. There's a Gauguin monograph, and I can think of some reasons Gauguin is problematic. The End of Blackness, there it is, that, that, yeah. And so for me, when I see this picture, some of its fascinatingness, if that's a word, is there's a certain dissonance in those titles, and I wonder if that struck you too. No, I think it's all about knowledge. People want to know. It's just like how many of us like I was explaining earlier about when I hear different things on TV about white supremacy, whatever, how many of us go out and do the research to find out knowledge and more about it, okay? And I feel that when it comes to other cultures, I don't know how many people will go out and buy some of these books to read about, you know? Even when it comes to blackness, you know? I want to wrap up by asking you what you're working on now. You mentioned farming. Yes, I was really, I'm, I'm looking at the land, and I started a body of work a year ago. I got so much going on. A year ago on the urban farming of blacks because of the, they talk about the food desert. And there's a Atlanta harvest here in Atlanta, Georgia, a father and son is built an oak built an urban farm where they're teaching blacks how to grow food, how to eat, and the health, because it's very important. We need to connect back to the land. But even within the bigger picture, I'm going to be photographing the landscape in the coastal cities, in Brunswick, St. Augustine. And so that's what I'm working on now. Don't know what I'm going to call it. It would be a collective of, from Invisible Empire, Behold the Land to This. It's like a new day. Sheila Prebright, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.